0: My guest today is Markus Hoene, a research associate at the Institute of Social Anthropology in the University of Leipzig. He focuses on conflict and identity formation in northern Somalia and has extensive experience working in the Horn of Africa. In 2015, he published a single-authored book named Between Somaliland and Puntland, Marginalization, Militarization, and Conflicting Political Visions. The book offers an intricate examination of conflict in the borderlands between the de facto independent state of Somaliland and the Somali region of Puntland. We are revisiting this book and talking with Marcus today, because in the past few months, conflict has again erupted around Las Node, the major population center in the area that Marcus's book focuses on. In this podcast, we will first learn more from Marcus about the Las Node conflict and hear about his most recent research from the last few months. Then we will take a step back and chat more generally about the role of social anthropologists amidst conflict. This is something that Marcus and other scholars explore in Dynamics of Identification and Conflict, Anthropological Encounters, an anthology that Marcus helped edit, which came out last fall. Marcus, thank you for coming on the New Books Network. Anthony, thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you as well. Well, why don't we um, start our discussion, and I'd love to uh, hear more about uh, yourself and how you came to focus on Somaliland and the Horn of Africa uh, at large.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I started out in the in, in the late two thousands and in the late actually nineteen nineties, around two thousand, um, when I was writing my master thesis at the University of Munich, and I wanted to do something on dynamics of peace and conflict, also on conflict prevention, because in those days, you know, it was you know after of course Somalia, the crisis in Somalia, then also Liberia, former Yugoslavia, Rwanda. So there were a couple of emblematic crises in in the nineteen 90s, and conflict prevention became a very important topic from the mid 1990s onwards. So I remember in my undergraduate, we had a seminar on that and I was wondering, so I mean, all these discussions on conflict prevention come from a state driven, even Eurocentric perspective. So it's very much, you know, in order to measure stability or fragility in certain places around the globe, you would look at, you know, freedom of speech, um, inequality, equality, um, you know, democratic institutions, elections and all these kind of things. And I thought, as an anthropologist, you know that's all fine, but you know there should be something like a human universal, which is, in every society you have conflict, and in every society you have ways of settling conflict. Right? It doesn't depend on state institutions. It doesn't depend on democratic institutions. So in each and every society throughout human history, conflict and conflict settlement. Was there. So anyway, my idea for my master thesis was to look at a case study to compare international ways of settling a conflict and local ways of settling a conflict. And then I was, you know, my my supervisor suggested the case of Somalia. Um, So I looked uh, into it deeply um, as a desk study for my master thesis. And literally that was the time when I discovered Somaliland. So I mean, this is probably funny today because this was the days when like for people like me, at least the Internet was kind of a very new thing to explore. And, you know, the literature on which I was relying normally throughout my studies was, was books, you know, books which were published like sometimes decades ago. And a very recent book I could get was maybe five years old, you know. So but but we didn't get information with what happened last month or last year. So something which came out last year was mostly not available for us. Until we used started using the internet, and you know, during the the final phase of my master thesis, I started using the internet after I had written read all the books, you know, the classical books in the shelves on Somali issues, and then I started using the internet, and there was a website called Irin, so which was a it was a UN website which was accompanying the peace process in Arta, um, in Djibouti, in the town of Arta in in 2000, and this was when I actually came across um, Somaliland. I mean, the the most recent dynamics in Somaliland. I had I had read. Some stuff on the dynamics in the 1990s, you know, on peace building in the 1990s in parts of Somaliland, which was, you know, important for my thesis because this was, so to say, the empirical material I wanted to use through the literature. But then um, um, I I came across this news from Somaliland, which were indeed like just a month old or just a week old. And I became very fascinated that this Somaliland still exists, you know, that it continues. despite not being recognized and so on and forth um, you know and once I concluded my my um, thesis um, I was introduced to a Somali in Germany you know by one of the professors who had read my thesis and he said you know uh, why don't you chat and then this guy in Germany he was from Hargeysa he originally from Hargeysa he invited me to his home he said ah, oh, you know something about my country about Somaliland why don't you come yeah and then I got some money from my family and and and, and flew to Harghizawa basically in in July 2002 it was um, and then I realized, wow! I mean, this is really amazing. This is uh, this is something really there. I mean, you you I mean, you have been there yourself, Antony. But you, so in those days, Hargeisa was still, um, uh, still, um, you know, you could see the traces from the civil war, right? You could see a lot of houses with uh, with, um, you know, in, in, in hit by bullets and, and destroyed houses in the middle of the town. And Hargeisa was not like it looks today. I mean, it was, it was pretty much um, smaller, and it was um, it had all these traces from the civil war. But at the same time, it already had traces of rebuilding so i remember my first impression was wow it's very colorful you know the civil war had just ended you know less than 10 years ago actually if you count the internal wars in 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 Hargeisa, like until 1995 so i was there in 2002 though it was just seven years ago that there was there was um, war in the streets of Hargeisa. And, uh, and the big bombardment was not so long ago, the bombardment by Seat in 1988. So anyway, in, in, in against this backdrop, against the backdrop of the history of violence about which I had read, I thought, wow, it's very colorful and people are getting along and they are cheerful, you know, alive. I mean, the, the streets are full of laughing and busy people, very industrious men and women. Um, so I was um, quite impressed about about that, you know. And then, you know, after I spent some time in Hargeisa by chance, um I, I started venturing out into the regions. So I met a fellow traveler who was also an anthropologist and she introduced me to to a guy who took us to to Edigabo. So we went together to Edigabo, and I realized oh it's it's quite different there somehow. It's also the you know you know How people are and also probably what I would say now, what I would call now political positions were quite differently in Erigavo, differently in Erigavo than they were in Hargeisa. And um, then I returned to Hargeisa, and after a while I met a guy who told me, if you want to understand anything about Northern Somalia or about Somaliland, you, you have to go to Las Arnot. And then I took my chance and I took a taxi, public transport, like for a few dollars. And I went from Hargeisa to Las Arnold all on my own um, at a time when quite a few people said this is possibly a dangerous ride. And um, so I arrived in Las Arnold. I stayed there probably for a good week. And I realized, wow, it's like a different world, you know, like politically speaking. In Hargeisa, everybody talks about the Somali national movement, about the rebellion against Mohamed Siad Barre, about the liberation of the country from dictatorship, about rebuilding and peace building and democracy and so on. And in am not honestly, back then, I mean, people were wearing, you know, like these kind of little hats with the Somali flag on it, you know, this um, you know, blue hats with a white star on top, or there were all these, um, like, wall paintings to Morals about Darwish and Somali flag was uh, was uh, was was visible in many places. So I realized, okay, this is this is like I'm I'm supposedly still in the same country, but it you know it feels like a very different country. So I that's when I was when I decided to write my PhD about it. About these kind of political differences, within a realm of just like a few, like hundred kilometers, five hundred kilometers from Hargeisa to to Las Anod, it's like traveling from Somaliland to another place, which you know, which is probably Somalia. But you know, according to the colonial map, it was still part of Somaliland. So I was interested in going after this: what is behind this political dynamics which created these differences?
0: Hmm. Well, talking about the differences, uh, can you introduce the conflict in Lhasa and the Somaliland-Puntland borderlands to those who might not be very familiar with it? Who are the key players, clans, state-like actors, and uh, what have they been fighting about?
1: Yeah, so I mean... I guess what most people know about Somalia in general is that Somalia um, fell apart officially. So it's called a failed state in 1991. And um, when, when the government of Somalia collapsed in 1991, the country was, so um, to, to say, captured by various militias, by various mi- militia groups, and the northwest of the country was um, captured by the Somali national movement um the northeast was eventually captured by the Somali Salvation Democratic front and the south was captured by various movements but the most famous one is the united Somali Congress USc um, headed by previously by um, Mohammed Farah Hadid and then it splintered into two groups one Mohammed Farah Hadid's group and the other one Ali Mahdi's group and this again is a famous story which I guess every American at least and most um, western citizens would know um, as Black Hawk Down right I mean everything which happened then in the early 90s the famine in southern Somalia which was um, partly man-made I mean it was a result of, um, of the war which caused havoc to the, um, to the the to the population tilling the land and then and, I mean and then the farmers in southern Somalia who lost a harvest and then the drought hit and all this together produced a horrible famine which killed probably 300,000 people in 1992, 1993. Then the United Nations and the US back then first under George Bush, the, the elder one and then Bill Clinton, they decided to intervene. For humanitarian reasons, and this humanitarian intervention, the first one in the history of the United Nations, the disarmed, you know, this armed humanitarian intervention, it was a robust peacekeeping intervention So to say the troops were armed and they were supposed to enforce peace. And this peace enforcement mission um, went pretty wrong, as is known by almost everybody. And the emblematic event was in early October in Mogadishu in 1993, when uh, American special forces were going after one of these um, uh, famous warlords, I mean, about Ma- Mohammed Farah Hadid, and you know, in the pursuit, they were attacked by his forces, and several helicopters were shot down, and American special forces were killed. So this is what everybody knows about Somalia, right? I mean, all the, it's a failed state, it's famine, it's warlords, it's disaster. But the other story of Somalia, I think, is much more interesting, because all this what I just briefly talked about, this is pretty much Mogadishu, right, in the early 90s. But Somalia is more than 600,000 square meters, right? It's, it's, it's square kilometers. It's it's like two, double the size of Germany, for instance. And, you know, in, in 80% of the country, other things happened. And what happened in these other areas of Somalia is what Ken Mankow, an American professor of political science who was concerned with Somalia, called the radical lo- localization of politics, the radical localization of politics. And, and this was, you know, in the absence of a central government, uh, all across the territory of Somalia, local forms of establishing political order emerged. And these local forms of, of political ordering, they were partly based on on religious norms, on Islam. They were partly based on clan um, authority, on, on traditional authority, on, on clan rule. Uh, on any kind of interesting mixture between them. So well, there were a lot of political hybrids emerging. And probably the most successful political hybrid emerging was Somaliland in the Northwest, because there all this started, you know, at a very local level, you know, between the, the Somali national movement, which, as I said, was the biggest guerrilla force. Um, but they captured most of the land, but not all of it. And in order to, you know, in order to stop first a civil war, as it was escalating in southern Somalia, the good thing was the SNM did it, it. It it reached out to the other armed movements, small clan militias in the area, and they said, "Let's not, you know, let's not continue fighting each other." I mean, the North had come out of a, you know, already out of ten years of civil war, like in the nineteen eighties, the Somali civil war already had started in North Somalia. It then spread all across the country until nineteen ninety one. The government in Mogadishu fell, so the guys in the North already had an experience of fighting and they realized now we shouldn't continue like it's it's only you know causing um, more misery misery to all of us so they reached out and using all these kind of like existing local traditions you know based on islam based on traditional authorities somali customary law also influenced of course by by people's you know other forms of knowledge like being trained military guys, being intellectuals, having been abroad and so on. All this came together and people created a very interesting hybrid form of local governments, governance, for local peace building and um, Somaliland emerged in this process and the problem the conflict in Las Arnold however is also connected to this actually very interesting history because initially in 1991 when when the first big conferences happened in las ano in 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 somaliland to to create this you know new political order you know regional political order um the consensus among all the actors in the region in northwestern somalia was let's build peace but i would say the consensus was not let's secede from somalia However, you know, um, due to certain dynamics, I mean, also last minute events in, 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 during these peace conferences, particularly the one in Bur'o, um there was a sentiment, you know, that the majority of the SNM rank and file demanded secession from Somalia in line with the borders of the former British Protectorate. So the area had been a British Protectorate. The rest of Somalia had been administrated by the Italians. So in this last-minute demand at the peace conference for the, for the region to declare secession from Somalia was not you know, supported by all the important actors in the area. So everybody could agree on peace, but not everybody could agree on secession However, due to the fact that Somali, the Somali National Movement, the SNM, was the most powerful political player in town and the most powerful militia in the area, you know that the, there was not re, no real option to oppose the demand for secession. So, anyway, though the secession was also part of the agreement, and I would argue, ex post, one can see it pretty clearly, those actors, actors who had actually had been opposed to declaring secession from Somalia, they, in the following years, even decades... They silently quitted Somaliland, like step by step, bit by bit. You know, there was some period of cooperation when there was no alternative. You know, like Somaliland became more and more stable. South Somalia remained pretty instable until very recently. Even it, it's still pretty instable, but it was more instable some years ago. And against this backdrop, I mean, many, many actors acted rather pragmatically and said, OK, I mean, let's go with Somaliland as long as... As, as there's peace, but once Somalia is getting um, on its feet again, we will discuss Somali, I mean, you know, reestablishing Somalia, and there will be Somali unity. And the tragedy is somehow in my eyes so this has been the situation I, I could observe even when I was there in 2002 you know I saw this was very visible I mean Hargeisa was just you know on the way to become a real capital Somaliland was not recognized it was a pretty funny place for most people I mean it was not a place to go for most foreigners um, and if you told to, would tell anyone you know in a political scientist an international lawyer somewhere in the west that you know you would go to Somaliland people would have big question marks in their eyes. So, I mean, Somaliland was not known, it was not considered. The United Nations were actively against it. You know, and I saw it in 2002, it's a small place and, you know, people even in Hargeisa were pretty moderate. I mean, people said, you know, we experienced a lot of horrible violence by the Somali government in the 1980s and thanks to God now we have our peace and we have our land. But people, you know, were in a way, I had the feeling that many people even in Hargeisa were not really believing that Somaliland would eventually become... Uh, recognized state. I had the feeling that even in Hargeisa, many of the older generation, some of whom had actually been fighting for the S N M with the S N M, were still thinking about you know Somali unity. So and um, and when I was going to to the east to Las Arnot as I said, um, people were all up for, for Somalia, So they they wouldn't they wouldn't consider Somaliland. But anyway, things changed over the last twenty years, you know. And in the center, in Hargeisa, Berbera, Burao, in the in the towns in in central Somaliland, you know, a lot of developments took place. A lot of also political development took place, economic developments took place. So I mean, Somaliland became more and more real. Right? I mean, if you, you have been there recently, if you enter Somalia hargeisa and now you go to an international airport, uh, uh, Mohammed Hachibram Igal International Airport, it feels like to me at least it feels like pretty much an international airport particularly if you go to town i mean i would say wow hargesa has been it's it looks like an east african or northern horn of african capital you know it's 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 a big city it's flashy it has skyscrapers it has a lot of fancy new buildings beautiful cafes big malls so yeah you can i would say it's it's you know it for me at least it feels like Djibouti or parts of Addis Ababa or, you know, it's, 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 well, but things have been developing quite differently in the East. And that's a tragedy So those people who did not actually support secession in 1991, they didn't integrate. And there was a bigger and bigger gap developing between what happens in central Somaliland and what happens particularly in the East, you know, where I wrote my book about, um, And, um, and so today you have a situation where you have a young generation like those around 30, maybe between, you know, younger than 35 who have grown up in, I mean, in central Somaliland who believe Somaliland is, you know, their, 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 their country, it's, that's what they where they have been born and that's all they know and they very often have never traveled beyond Bur'o though they they remained in the central areas and they think the whole country looks like Hargeysa, Burro, and Berbara right and um, you know and you have at the same time a whole generation of young people in the eastern regions particularly in places like Las Anod or Baram who have grown up in a very marginal area and who have grown up with all this you know this, um, this histories of you know actually we once were Somalia and Somalia was a wonderful country and then it fell apart it was broken actually to pieces by all these militias and now we are still trying to recover and we are hoping for Somalia to emerge again so you have a whole generation of young people in the eastern areas who grow up with this kind of narrative and you know the clashes which we are can which we can observe in this year i mean 2023 since january february in my eyes they are the product of this long history of drifting apart you know like somaliland on the one hand was this wonderful creative place where hybrid forms of political order and hybrid forms of peace building were implemented that's where where i wrote my master thesis all about and in those days i thought somaliland is a wonderful example for excuse this kind of a little bit flat expression but african solutions for african problems well i mean somaliland was a self-made country and it solved it settled the conflict without much external help and one has to recognize that and i will always Um, hold Somaliland uh, people of Somaliland in high regards because they set a real wonderful example but at the same time unluckily in the last couple of years Somaliland became a place where you realized somehow people drifted apart and um, those guys who live in Hargeisa today they have somehow no clue about the everyday reality of those people living in Las Arnot and vice versa um and, and 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 this has has been a political conflict for a long time but now it has become militarized and people are all up in arms you know and in Las Anod you have something like 8000 armed men you know mostly from a particular clan called Tolbahante but also supported by other um, by other close relatives from other clans so these guys are now ready to die to fight for somali unity um, on on this side of Somaliland, you have a you know you have thousands of, of 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 young soldiers in the Somaliland army, who mostly belong to the bigger clan formation called Isaac, um, who believe well this is all our territory, and they are ready to die for that for a land which they actually somehow never really owned you know, so this is for me this is the tragedy how how a very interesting story of local-level, bottom-up peace-building turned into a pretty vicious fight over political visions, which now costs the lives of thousands of people, actually.
0: Well, we'll get back to uh, the current conflict, but I did want to make sure that we talk about your uh, 2015 book, which is probably one of the most detailed English language texts about uh, state building and conflict and these local formations in the Somaliland and Putland borderlands. Uh, I'm wondering if you can walk us through the main points uh, of the book really quickly.
1: Yeah, so I started already a little bit talking about that, of course. So yeah, when I, the book is actually based on on many years of research. So, as I said, I when the first time I was in the area was in two thousand two. Uh, back then, I did not have a grant. Then I got a PhD grant in two thousand three, and then I spent fifteen months on the ground between two thousand three and two thousand four, um, and um, and then afterwards I followed up over the years with different projects and grants well, from two thousand eight onwards. In this book, um, between Somaliland and Puntland, is essentially based on yeah, I would say several years of, you know, research on the ground. I mean, probably two to three years of field work on the ground over the years. Um, and, um, and for me, it was also a chance, you know, to capture, to write something which, which captures a dy- dynamic, right? I mean, I could have probably written a book in 2005 or 2006 based on my 15 months of field research, um and you know for different reasons i didn't do that i mean also because i was caught up in other things but anyway the, for me it was lucky that i that i produced the book so to say after a few years only and then i could capture dynamics in the region over the years and on the one hand i mean a couple of points i'm, I'm making so i think one thing is getting a sense of you know these borderlands you know like very often, so I'm a political anthropologist, and 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 some of the topics I'm talking, of course, also political sociologists who talk about political scientists who work um, empirically. I mean, people who work um, through um, um, who work in Africa, like um, 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 Klaus Schlichte in German, a German professor of political science. Who Klaus Schlichte has been working in, in, in Mali, I think, in other places, or Trutz von Trota, or Pierre Engelbert and and others. I mean, all these people who are political scientists, even also Ken Mankos, of course, and Roland Marchal in Somalia. So they are political scientists, but they spend a lot of time on on the ground. So sometimes the difference between a political anthropologist and a political scientist is not that big. But, But for me, one difference which became clear over the years is that I would think that most political scientists actually like to focus on the centers, right i mean they are very happy if they they spend time in 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 capitals or in emerging capitals like hargeisa or juba or um, asmara or addis and so on in the force and and they, they in these these capitals they this political scientists are very often pretty happy to speak you know with party leaders with ministers or with ex ministers with generals with ex generals and so on in the force um, And I found myself in these borderlands speaking with all kinds of ordinary people, sometimes also with a name, you know, some ex-ministers or ex-generals, but from the time of Syed Bada often. But, you know, very often most of my interlocutors were very ordinary men and women. Who um, just lived in those borderlands? I mean, in contested borderlands, at the margins. You know, every state has margins, right? I mean, you find margins everywhere—in Germany, in, in the U.S., in Indonesia—and you find margins in northern Somalia. um But so it, it occurred to me that you know those margins are actually very central for certain topics. So, and particularly if you have. um a polity in the making, like Somaliland, which is emerging, it's not yet stable. It's, For me, it was actually a gift almost by, you know, a gift by, I don't know, by fate or something like that, that I could be an, a witness of a political formation, you know, something which has been described historically by people like Charles Tilly, right? I mean, state formation in Western Europe, right? How from some some small chiefdoms or dukedoms, some kind of absolutist rules emerged. And from these absolutist rules over the centuries, the so-called modern European nation state emerged, right? So, um, Charles Tilly describes it, you know, between 1600 and 1900, right? And also in um, combination with the emergence of capitalism. So I, I do not want to put myself, of course, on the same level like Charles Tilly. But for me, it occurred at one po- moment, wow. I mean, what we all what we all can observe in, in Northern Somalia is, is the emergence of a new political order and something which goes beyond the village level, right? It goes beyond the village, beyond the town. It's, it is actually a new political order which may turn into a new state called the Republic of Somaliland and for sure it also has implications of of the Somali for the Somali Republic because you know it they, they cannot be at the same time Somalia and Somaliland I mean claiming at least the same state territory right i mean there has to be some kind of large scale political rearrangement if you look at the um, post colonial map of Africa um so anyway, and, and there I am as a political anthropologist who just hangs out in the margins. And the one, one, one point of my book was you know, to look at these, what I think are large-scale political developments from a very local perspective, and particularly from the perspective of the borderlands, which are normally not considered by most foreigners visiting the area. So this was is one of the points of my book that I think centering the margins is important to understand this political formation in the making in Russian Somalia. Um and and another fascinating thing what I found, and which is more like a sociological footnote, was then you have this borderland entrepreneurs, right? You have these these people who have a very specific individual capacity. They have a certain social capital, a certain cultural capital, a certain political capital, if you like. And they were oscillating between Somaliland in the Northwest and Puntland in the Northeast, between different local formations, like we will talk about it probably, SSC and Khatumu, um, local political formations in the contested borderlands, and also Mogadishu. So you had the same person who I would meet probably in 2002 as a minister for Somaliland. And in 2004, I met him as a minister of Puntland. And in 2009, I would meet him again as a political figure in Somaliland. The same person, right? And luckily, since I was around for so many years, I could meet him all the time, you know, or once he was a military officer in the Somaliland army and once he was a military officer in the Puntland army and then he switched again and then maybe he even switched again. So I met people who switched four times and in between maybe they had to sutron in Mogadishu. So, and it was interesting for me to, to to look at those individuals and see so what drives them of course it's money it's power but what is the impact of, of their action for their communities because these were normally local elites right I mean these were not ordinary people but these were people who had you know a considerable following among their relatives and so this is another aspect so looking at the borderlands looking at borderland, borderland entrepreneurs Um and what else? I mean, I guess my book also is full of, if full of, interesting stories about how a, a political conflict became militarized, because initially, as I said, probably in the introductory remarks of, of, of my my work in northern Somalia, I mean, in 2002, in 2003, 2004, all the political contradictions which we can see today militarized, fully militarized, have been there. Right, but they have not been fought over. You know, it was just an argument. People in Haraga said, "You know, we are independent. We are Somaliland. Our borders have been established through the British. You know, in the times of in the colonial times, so it's a British protectorate." People in Las ano said, "No, we are not part of Somaliland. We are actually part of Somalia. We have been freedom fighters. We have been Darwish, um, and we united in 1960. And ever since, we are Somalia. And Somaliland doesn't exist." But but though, I mean, just in a nutshell, right? I'm just putting the things in a nutshell but for many years these were just political arguments you know by 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 people you know who who um but there was no fighting over this but but you know in my book and also in the most recent um, reports i did on on the conflict on the escalating conflict at the moment it becomes very clear how a political argument becomes militarized and then of course my question is also why does it become militarized and it becomes militarized through lots of Individual decisions, you know, of you know individuals or smaller groups, who decide now to really implement political visions, you know, and that's that's why I actually have as a subtitle marginalization, militarization, and conflicting political visions, because I'm really convinced that what is at stake in you know Somaliland, Puntland, and now in these contested borderlands across, around Las Anod, for instance, what is at stake is not a simple um, how do you say. Fighting over economic resources. It's also not, in my eyes, and some people differ on that. It's not also a, a fight for the bigger share of the cake, though these are some other analysis, analysis which very, are very often introduced by by political scientists. You now they always say there are so many people who always say it's about the oil. it's, It's clear. I mean, in Eastern Somaliland, there's oil, and that's why they're fighting. Yes, for sure, natural resources are an important driver of political conflict, for sure. But, you know, over all those years in which I spent time in those areas, and particularly in this marginalized borderlands, and I was speaking not only with very important people, but with ordinary people, with men and particularly also women and the younger generation, it occurred to me, at least it occurred to me, that what these people are concerned is really a political vision. You know, how should Somalia look like? Or, on the other side, how should Somaliland look like? And it's, in my eyes, it's not so much about oil, it's not so much about, about natural resources, it's not so much about getting a bigger share in one of those regional governments. It's pretty much the dream of ISIS Somaliland Oh, Puntland, you know, and you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, to argue that in my book, I would say that this is, this is, a, this is an important factor to consider, and this, I would think, is rarely considered in in literature on political conflict in Africa. It's very often resource curse, right? I mean, it's very often it's about natural resources, you know. Um, or there are some kind of statist discourses. I, I don't know. It's just like this who gets, you know, a certain group feels marginalized and feels underrepresented in the government and so on that they are fighting for a bigger share in the government. Yeah, that's. but, but somehow for me, these things play a role. But, you know, I cannot help but say, I think there's something else at stake in northern Somalia, and this is something to do with political visions, and that's what my book is also about. And and then how these political visions actually become, so to say, uh, um, not only a bone of contention, but really um, the driving uh, the driving causes for uh, really hands-on military confrontation. So what we see today is, and this was visible already in for my 2015 book. I mean, people are forming militias and these militias start fighting. And initially, it's not very... You know, it's not very substantial, you know, those people cl- being killed in, you know, from my book covers at the time until 2015. So, I mean, the militia fighting started, in, I would say, in 2009. So there was a group called Sol Sanak and Ayn formed, which I document in my book. Um, and, and it was a very small movement, to be honest. I mean, it was a few hundred guys with very few military equipment. And they were trying to challenge the Somaliland army in their area in eastern Somaliland and they couldn't stand a chance to be honest you know and there were there were a couple of skirmishes with a couple of people getting killed and there was a bigger clash over in a place called Kalschale, which is very local nobody knows it but you know for me and for local people it was actually a big thing Kalschale fighting 2011 but let's say there were 100 casualties right injured maybe maybe 70 injured and 30 killed roughly like that it's in my book it's documented so i mean this is very small stuff. I mean, in Somalia, there's, you know, many bigger crises going on. If you look at South and Somalia, the fight against Al-Shabaab, you have hundreds and hundreds of people getting killed or injured, even thousands over the year. Um, but um, but it was just the beginning, you know, and this beginning, you know, gave gave birth to to another movement, which is called Khatumu. And Khatumu was established in 2009, and this was already much better organized. And for me as an anthropologist, it was fascinating to see. I mean, I could... I could follow up live, actually, through my friends on the ground. I could follow up live how Khatumu was established, what kind of lessons were learned from, you know, the failure of the Soul Sanagan Ein movement, 2009 to 2011. So Khatumu was established 2012. And in preparation of Khatumu, people you know, tried to do it much better than, you know, in the borderlands, they tried to do it much better than they did before. Though there was lots of local consultations. Many of my friends who were intellectuals, who were, you know, um, university people, who who were um, humanitarian people, they they got involved, you know, in community consultations. So the, for me, it was fascinating to see, that like, these people are now really discussing their political future and they take action, you know, it's like, like, Four four months later, all these consultations um, um, climaxed in the declaration of Khartoum State of Somalia, which was much bit better organized than SSC. And then they tried to liberate the area um, seriously, and there were more serious clashes between Khatumu forces and Somaliland forces, and also Khartoum forces and Puntland forces. Because interestingly, I mean, this is not very detailed, but. Um, you know, initially there had been some kind of alliance between those people, you know, in the eastern Somaliland and Puntland. But then, in 2012, 13, this alliance had broken down, and so on in the forest. I don't want to go into more details here, but um, but so uh, for me, as a political anthropologist, it was interesting to follow up all these dynamics, how actually political visions were implemented. And anyway, in my book, is you know about that, basically. Making state uh, war, making is state making, and state making is war making. A little bit like this Tilian dictum, um, it it was you know became reality in eastern Somaliland.
0: Well, it's been eight years since you uh, wrote the book between Somaliland and Puntland, and you've been continuing to monitor the region and the conflicts going on there quite closely and we're just back there uh, a couple weeks back. Um, can you talk a bit about what has changed, what has stayed the same, and also what has being there on the ground allowed you to see that uh, others may not have?
1: So yeah, I mean, I was there like in early May. I was in Las Arnold, which is the center of this conflict now in Eastern Somaliland or between Somaliland and Puntland, so people there would, would consider themselves now be fully part of Somalia, not of Somaliland anymore. And um, I was there, I was welcomed by the local, um, by, you know, by local authorities, by the leaders of of an uprising, which is now called SSC Hatumo. There's a combination of these previous uprisings now. First it was SSC, then it was Hatumu, and now it is SSC Hatumu. Um So they are, you know, on in the process of forming their own, Federal state. That's what that's their current vision, um, but actually they are very much involved in in defending their town Las Arnot, which is the biggest town in this area, um, against what they perceive um, Somaliland's aggression or what is clearly Somaliland's aggression. Though the town was controlled by Somaliland between 2007 and 2022, actually, so until recently. Um, you know, I, I I followed up with this um, with this controlling of Somaliland of uh, Las arnott and um, for many people initially it felt like an, an occupation, and eventually in the last couple of years the um, um, the inhabitants of las anod somehow arranged with the somaliland administration but it needs to be understood that you know those people who who lived in las anod under somaliland um, administration in the last couple of years was only a part of the original inhabitants because many inhabitants had actually left the town when somaliland took over and never really returned and these people always had the idea to Liberate Las Anod from Somaliland. So, and this liberation happened in the last couple of months. It started in January with a public uprising against the Somaliland administration, um, which had conducted a couple of, you know, I had, con- you know, it had cracked down on demonstrations. It had killed some civilians. There was lots of insecurity in town, um, and eventually um, the local population rose up against this. Um, and then in uh, mid-January, Somaliland took a curious decision. They decided to withdraw from the town in order to calm the situation down, which was... Nice. I mean, it was a nice move. Um, um, it was certainly sparing um, civilian lives in, in Las Arnott. At the same time, it opened the door for all those people who had left Las Arnott the years before to re-enter um, and to re-enter also with um, armed men, so to say. I mean, more arms and more men were pouring into town in January. Um, there was officially a discussion about the political future of the place among the local clan leadership, um, and in early gener- in early February, actually, this decision was supposed to be announced. It was clear that this decision would say, um, we want to um, free ourselves from Somaliland administration, do not return to town, actually vacate our areas. So I, I, I avocate all these areas in eastern Somaliland, which is our clan homeland, which belongs to the clan called Dulbahante. So it was clear that this would be the message. And in the morning when this message was supposedly to supposed to be declared openly um, fighting started. Um and um and um Somaliland I think had thought that they its army which was positioned outside of town very close to Las Anod it could its army could could capture the town within one day But they somehow had not calculated and I, I still do not know how they could not understand that you know in this few weeks when you know in January when the Somaliland forces had withdrawn from Las Anod and when all these Groups and you know individuals and groups were, were 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 entering the town who had left it you know years ago who were part of the local community but who had you know spent um, the last few years outside of Las Anod when they re-entered you know they they milit they 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 armed the local population was heavily armed they they became they, there was lots of arms flowing into town so on in early February when you know the fighting happened and Somaliland for armies was thinking that we actually could capture the town within no time they met with a considerable armed resistance, um, and ever since, um, quite serious fighting um, happened around Las Arnot. I mean, not on a daily basis. I mean, in February, it was pretty much on a daily basis. In March, it was also pretty intense. In the last, um, I would say, the last six weeks, the intensity of this fighting has died down, luckily. But still, we have... um, Strongly armed groups on both sides. So the inhabitants of Las Arnold and their allies um, are, are decided to continue the defense of their town, and um, and the Somalian forces positioned on the in the north of Las Arnold are decided to recapture the town. So the, the situation is like a um, is like a standoff, I guess. Um, so I was invited by the local um, by the local leadership of this uh, of this uprising to 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 enter Las Arnod to look at the situation to document the damage also done by the Somaliland army which has been which had been shelling um, has been shelling Las Arnold over the last couple of months, partly indiscriminately and also has been damaging like for instance mosques and uh, hospitals and civilian houses. So I was invited to document that. Um, I was um, able. To interview many of um, the political and military leadership, but also um, humanitarian actors, medical doctors, nurses, um, NGO people in and around Las Arnott and you know to get you know to to get a first hand experience of the situation and, and write a report about it. So, so which I did. The report was published on 8th of, of June um, with an institute called Rad Institute for Peace Research, um, and I think it informs um, everybody who wants to be informed at least about what's going on on the side of those people defending Las Arnott. Of course, on the other side, um, what's actually the reasoning of people in Hargeisa, the government of Somaliland, um, um, this report doesn't touch too much on on, on this, but it's actually pretty well known. So Somaliland is fighting for what it considers its own territory because Las Arnott and the surroundings have been included in the former British protectorate of Somaliland you know, which existed between 1880s and 1960. And the Republic of Somaliland today claims that it's basically the successor of the British Protectorate, right? So the Somaliland government actually wants to control the land. But those people living there in the eastern regions, they they do not want to be controlled by Somaliland. Um, and um, so, yeah, so my impression was, so to say, first and experiences from, from, a, from, a, from a city which is under siege. So, yeah.
0: Got it. Um, well, let's take a step back and go to the next part of our conversation where you know, I want to talk more about how those who are not specialists inside of the um, conflict Uh, in these borderlands or not specialists in the Horn of Africa uh, could learn from your scholarship. And one thing that you have opined on is whether social anthropologists can or should remain neutral in situations of conflict. Would love to hear more of your thoughts on this front. so i think throughout
1: my earlier research my phd research and also follow up researches in the you know 2008 and following years i i think i always tried very hard to 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 stay in between right so i mean i i was doing research in somaliland in hargeisa in buro I was doing research in the contested borderlands in Las but also in places like Edigabo, Barran, Buhotle, and other places in these contested borderlands. And several times I also ventured into Puntland, into Garowe, Um So I always had the, you know, the feeling that by going back and forth between these different localities, which are, you know, differently have different where people have different political positions, you know, on when I mean like. In a nutshell, whenever I was in Las Anot, I had conversations with my friends, with my local friends or local interlocutors, in a, a little bit translating also the Hargesa view of things to people in Las Anot. When I returned to Hargesa, I had the opposite experience. I, I was hanging out with my local interlocutors and local friends in Hargesa, and I translated to them a little bit, you know, what, you know, the feeling and the opinions from Las Anot. So... What I, what I, and when I was in in Puntland, it, the same thing happened. You know, I, I was translating to those people, uh, also positions from Asarnod, which were not always in line with the positions of people in Garaway. So anyway, my my in a way, my mission or my my behavior as a conflict anthropologist was, so to say, to, to to always have discussions and, you know, not impersonate other people, but, you know, kind of trying to translate to those people the positions of the other side and this just happened you know this was not really my program but I, I found myself in all these conversations where when I was in our I would say yeah but, but you know people in us are not have this and that Idea and you know then my my friends or interlocutors in Hargeisa we entered into heated debates and I was kind of posing as the Dube Hunter guy but I did the same when I was in Las Arnold, you know and I spoke with my Dube Hunter friends and I said you know people in Hargeisa you know they have this in their logic and they would interpret the political history like that and then I had heated debates in Las Arnold. so in a way so this was my way of kind of keeping a middle ground because I, I didn't want to be positioned. I didn't want to be the one guy. No, but eventually when I, when I started writing my, my book, my 2015 book, I realized, okay, I mean, I got a very, I would say I got very detailed information, particularly about these contested borderlands. And I got these detailed information because people considered me closer to them, right, to those people in the borderlands. So that's why I wrote actually on the first page, I think, of my 2015 book that I'm biased. And I, I meant this in an anthropological tradition of positioning myself, of being transparent about my positioning. So I still believe that I worked really hard to do justice to all the sides of the conflict. Nevertheless, as it happened over the years, I got somehow a bit closer to some people, and I do not mean this at an as an individual at an individual basis, but I also somehow I, I I I delved deeper into the political positioning of those people in these contested borderlands, and that's why I wrote in my book I'm biased. Some of the information I can present in this book I can only present because people had an extra trust in me people in these contested borderlands had an extra trust in me. And I wanted to be transparent about it. It's, it's absolutely clear to me that I'm not a client person. You know, I'm not a member of one mm-hmm. of the local clans. I, I also do not want to write an academic work or a pseudo-academic work, which actually is only just speaking for one group. For me, this is completely boring. But at the same time, I want to be transparent. It's clear that I only got certain information because I was close to some people or closer to some people than to others. I think if you look at the literature on Northern and Somalia, you have many books which are biased. I mean, every book is biased in a way, right? But those books in this, in, this, in particular in Northern and Somalia, if you look at other famous books on the area, you know, most of these authors have been close to people in Hergesa, but they do not say it. You know, if you look at the, their sources, I mean, with whom did they do interviews? With where did they spend time? What kind of political dynamics do they analyze? It's very clear they are they are biased towards Hagesa but their book is called Somaliland, right? I mean, as if it would cover the whole area of this emergent state. So I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to say, here I am. This this is my positioning. I still want to talk about the conflict dynamics in the whole region, but I I do it from a certain vantage point. So now things changed very recently. So after I, I have written also quite benevolent I would say benevolent positive accounts of, of the dynamics of the emergence of Somaliland as a de facto state. Um, I have been a critical um, observer of, of dynamics in Somaliland. Um, also in the center, you know, in, in Hargeisa, what happens with the Gurti, with what happens with the House of Elders, what happens with the hybrid political order which has been established in Somaliland in the 1990s and which was the ha- Hallmark of this emerging state. So in my eyes, it got corrupted. So it also got corrupted in the eyes of many Somali analysts, by the way. So who am I quoting extensively in some of my papers? So I, what I want to say, I was a benevolent um, and critique uh, um, of, of, of the state formation process in Somaliland. In 2021, when Somaliland was turning 30, so it declared its independence in 1991, so in 2021 it had its 30 anniversaries, I, I was writing in several public um, in several outlets, you know, public outlets like um, Le Monde Diplomatique and others, African arguments. I wrote, I think, a rather positive account of many of the achievements in Somaliland. Things changed, you know, for me, really things changed on 6th of February, 2023, when the Somaliland army started bombarding Las Arnot. This was a moment where I decided now I'm not trying to keep a middle ground. So now I'm going to position myself. Because honestly, the fact that roughly 8,000 Somaliland soldiers are positioned north of Las Arnot with heavy equipment, with artillery and so on, and that they start shelling a town, which on 6th of February was full of civilians, and they killed, uh, you know, several dozens of civilians, including women and children and injured people. So this really made me switch. This really made me take a different position, and I thought now, now I'm I'm not you know, I'm, I'm not giving the same amount of attention to Hargeisa as I do to Las Arnot. Now I'm giving all my attention to Las Arnot. And there I took a very clear position, which also made me a couple of enemies, I would say, in social media. And I think as an anthropologist, you know, I have done 20 years of research on this conflict, right? I have written a whole PhD of like 500, close to 500 pages on this conflict, on the prehistory of this conflict. So, I, I, what outraged me actually most was that all the reasons which are now now advanced by the government in Hargeisa, the government of Somaliland, all the reasons why they would say um, we have to dominate Las Anod and we have to capture Las Anod, these reasons have been there twenty years ago. It's, it's what I said at the beginning of this book talk. I mean, these political differences, these different political visions, they are nothing new. But the government in Hargeisa tries to justify its, the shelling of Las arnott by saying, oh, there's Al-Shabaab, you know, they are terrorists, the terrorists are behind the uprising, or it's the Somali army, the Somali national army is attacking us, or the Puntland army is attacking us. No, it's not, it's local people, and they always have been, like 90% of the locals have always been in favor of Somalia. You just didn't listen to them or you didn't bother to really, you know, consider their political vision. But, you know, this outraged me, to be honest, that the Somaliland army starts bombarding a town and tries to legitimate it by inventing reasons. But the actual reasons for this conflict have been around for 20 years, you know, and that's why I think I I have to say something about it.
0: Well, I want to step away from the conflict a bit for uh, this this later note, um, and talk about your edited collection, uh, Dynamics of Identification and Conflict, Anthropological Encounters, which uh, talks more generally about identity formation in conflict regions. And I'm wondering if you can share some learnings that uh, academics, um, either in your field or outside your field, can take away from that.
1: Now, this edited volume is actually a fast shift for, for my PhD supervisor. It's for Professor Günther Schlee, who has spent four decades or even more in the Horn of Africa, particularly in northern Kenya, but also in southern Ethiopia and southern Somalia as a researcher and also in Sudan. Um, and he has been actually, you know, writing about conflict and identification for decades. And of course, his ideas also shaped mine and also the, my co-editor's ideas then i think what what this book actually does i mean it's a it's a it's a collection of essays from quite diverse people who you know um um, um, including nina glick schiller who is a pretty famous anthropologist of migration and transnationalism so she talks more about you know her connection you know the connection of her thinking with gunter's thinking but she essentially writes about migration so but what for me what this um, volume does is in a way it shows it argues that long-term localized field research really can yield important insights so that's what what you know in a nutshell i mean this is the book is about many different things but for me at least when it comes to dynamics of um, identification and conflict i mean what Günter schlee has been has done i mean he spent literally four decades in the horn of africa following up conflicts and dynamics and, you know, changes, political changes on the ground, particularly in northern Kenya, but also Southern and Ethiopia. And what I have been doing um over the last twenty years is following up these kind of dynamics in northern Somalia. And I think for me, this book is also not only celebrating the work of Günter Schlee, and also you know looking into the future by having all these interesting contributors who have their own take on things and very different topics. You know, the part some of the authors talk about Central Asia, some of them talk about migration um, between um, 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 you know Western Europe and other places on Earth. So it's um, it's quite diverse. But for me, what it all shows is that that you know long-term in-depth field research can produce important um, insights and it also can be systematized there, there are certain logics to conflicts right and this is also what actually emphasizes you know and what that's also what i would emphasize regarding the situation in northern somalia i mean um um if you for instance i mean one small lesson which is nevertheless important today i mean if you if you show people that you are ready to extinguish them, then they're going to fight back no matter what. And this is in a way what's happening in around Las Anod. I mean the people in, in Las Anod have learned now that the Somaliland government is ready to bombard their town, including all the civilians in town, just for the sake of saying I'm I'm dominating the area. I'm and this is my land, you know? Which triggers for sure a very, very vicious response by by local people. And uh, and and you know there are certain logics to conflicts, and I think this is what Schley says, what would we kind of analyze in this in this book, and what I'm trying to follow up uh, in my field. Though though, what are the local logics? How are conflicts interpreted, and what are the, the what are the actions following from this conflict, and how how do people maneuver the, to say conflict areas? And I think this this book dynamics of identification and conflict gives a lot of uh, ex- empirical examples of you know, um, maneuvering and human ingenuity, uh, uh, um, in conflict situations.
0: Well, on the note of, uh, research and ingenuity, um, what are you working on next? <laughs> Thank you. This
1: was very elegant. Um, no, I'm working on next, you know, I hope after I, no, I really want to write, um, two or three articles on this conflict dynamics in Northern Somalia. Um, also together with colleagues, hopefully with one colleague at least. And, um, what I really would love to do if I have some more time I want to write on forensic anthropology which is something I started to research on actually in 2015 2016 I started to um, as an anthropologist as an ethnographer to participate in the exhumation of mass graves in Hargeza actually and surroundings in northern in Somaliland um, mass graves which date back to 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 the to the beginning of the Somali civil war in the 1980s in, in northern Somalia um, Mass graves, which were produced by the military dictatorship, summarizing summary executing locals who were supporting the Somali national movement, so we're going back to square one in a way. Um, but what I'm interested in now is actually what not not about the political history, but what actually forensic anthropology as a craft is doing. To local people and to local conflict settings, because imagine—I mean, forensic anthropology is is a relatively new craft. It's a new; it's not even like an established science in most universities, right? You can there's only few places on earth, literally, where you can get a degree in forensic anthropology. Mostly, you study bioarchaeology, legal medicine, archaeology, genetics, and 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 it's a mixture of all of that. You know, forensic anthropology, anthropo- physical anthropology. So, forensic anthropologists, the established ones, typically have have a background in archaeology or physical anthropology and then all the other things are learning by doing right and um but forensics forensic anthropologists in recent years have become quite popular not only because of tv series in the us but but also because of course you know unidentified dead are. More, gaining more and more attention, you know, be it those people who are drawn in the Mediterranean, be it those people who disappear in, in Latin America or Mesoamerica in Mexico or Guatemala or other places, or be it the victims of previous genocides and civil wars like in Ethiopia and former Yugoslavia um, or, or in, in northern Somalia. Um, and um, or in Peru, of course, in, in in where where some of the forensic anthropologists who, who did the work in Somaliland came from originally. So anyway, I I I, I, I came across those people exhuming mass graves in in Somaliland. I thought this is a very interesting um, um, endeavor because. My calculation was opening those graves produces a lot of emotions. And these emotions are not only personal emotions, but these are also political emotions. And this will change the the political... Um, contract, if you like, the contract of Somaliland. I mean, because Somaliland, in a way, until this recent conflict in Las Anod, it you know many of the old stories from the civil war were in a way covered up in Somaliland. People didn't really want to talk about it. Um, and opening mass graves people, forces people to talk about it. So I was thinking, hey, um, I want to see what this produces. But when I was doing participant observation with those forensics in in Somaliland, I realized it's actually interesting to to look at it from a different perspective, not only from this local politics perspective or like emotions perspective, but so what is this craft actually? So what are they doing and what what do they do in different cultural contexts? So I was thinking, you know, again, people have, you know, all all humans have a sp- culturally specific way of relating to death, right? I mean, death is a very sensitive issue. It challenges humans because, you know, suddenly a, a, che- a loved person of your community a person, a member of the community isn't anymore so there's there's also sociological literature by robert herz and others uh, from durkheim school um, who who had written very interesting stuff in the early 20th century on on death and rite de passage like from um, gennep and so on anyway and I, I thought okay forensics in a way they are reopening this whole thing right i mean people at that and all these this for many dead people rituals were held even if those are disappeared dead and forensics bring back those bones and they bring back all these the old histories. so so how do people in different locations around the globe relate to this endeavor and so i I, this is what i want to write about forensic anthropology and cultural context so i'm I'm doing a comparative study between north and somalia somaliland and the highlands of peru where you know where lots of Exhumations happened um, in you know in the wake of um, um the, the armed conflict in the nineteen eighties, you know, with Sendero Luminoso um, fighting the Peruan government. So and the forensics who were doing the exhumations in Somaliland in 2012, 13, 15, 20, and so on, they were originally from Peru and they had started their craft in the highlands, in the Peruan highlands. And I wanted to do a comparative
0: study on forensic anthropology in these two different settings. Hmm. Well, look forward to seeing that work about forensic anthropology uh, come out in the near future. Um, Other than that, um, thank you very much, Marcus. This was an enlightening conversation. Listeners, if you want to learn more about what we discussed in this episode, look out for Marcus's books. There is Between Somaliland and Puntland. Then there is Dynamics of Identification and Conflict. And Marcus also has different reports about the ongoing conflict and uh, broader issues in the Somaliland-Puntland border regions that uh, we can link to in the show notes. Marcus, thank you again for coming on the New Books Network. Welcome and thank you too. Bye.